Amen. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40, uh, which begins on page 39 of your pew Bible. That's Genesis uh, 40, beginning on page 39 of your pew Bible, quickly turning over though to page 40 as we study this chapter together. And we will actually begin reading in a moment uh, at the end of chapter 39, verse 19. Genesis, remember where we are, I hope you do. Genesis is that great book written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the Exodus generation. So these are men, women, and children. They have just come out of Egypt. They have seen the most amazing miracles, really, that have ever been performed in the world. Uh, the only thing that comes close or is in that same ballpark would be, of course, the miracles of Christ. But outside of those miracles, it was the greatest time of miracles in human history. They've seen the Red Sea split. They've seen uh, the death angel pass over them and take the lives of uh, the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, they've seen all these things, but they are a people in many ways lost uh, despite these miracles. Remember, they have not been in the promised land for 400 years. Now, numbers roll really easily off our tongue. So Bear in mind, that's longer than the United States has existed. You are closer uh, in your life experience to George Washington than they were to Abraham. That's the distance we're talking about. This is a people that desperately needs to know who they are and why are they going back to this land and why do they have to take it and fight for it and, and do all these things. And then to accomplish that purpose... The Holy Spirit has come upon Moses, and he's writing the book of Genesis. He's telling them their story. He's starting with Adam and creation, explaining to them what went wrong. He's tracing through uh, Noah and to Noah's son, Shem, and then from Shem to Abraham. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, he begins to slow down in his writing, and the Holy Spirit uh, begins to tell us in more detail about this man, Abraham, and his faithful wife, Sarah, and then their sons, Isaac and Jacob. But then Genesis devotes um, the largest section of all to the life of Joseph. And we might ask ourselves, why is that? Why is it that Joseph gets more airtime than any other of the patriarchs, any of the other fathers in the book of Genesis? And I think there's two reasons, one a practical and one a theological. The practical reason, of course, is that Moses is writing this book for the Exodus generation. So they are very interested in the life of Joseph, right? Because that's how they ended up in Egypt. They need to know their own history. It's extremely relevant to them. So I have no doubt that he sort of spends more time on Joseph because it had a sort of practical importance for that generation. But I think there's also a, a more profound theological reason that the Holy Spirit chose to put the spotlight on Joseph. And that's this, that Joseph, more than anyone else we've met so far in Genesis, is a picture of Christ. He leaves his father's house, stripped of his glory, and suffers on behalf of his brethren as an older brother, eventually saving their lives and bringing them to repentance and really changing their lives spiritually and physically. And so that's really what we've come to in our study of Genesis. This very important figure who really is, in so many ways, a type of Christ. Last week, you'll remember 
how Joseph worked his way up from being a slave in Egypt. He becomes sort of a butler or a head, head servant in a major house, the house of Potiphar. He's running everything. It's not uh, quite the glory that he had been promised in his dreams by God when he saw the sheaves and stars bowing down to him. But it is a significant place in his life. But then Potiphar's wife, of course, comes after him and demands him, demands that he come to her. And he refuses and he's thrown back into the pit and thrown back into prison. And tonight we consider what God did for him in those important two years that he spent in prison. We'll begin reading in chapter 39, verse 19. I'll ask you to stand if you're able and we'll read through to the end of chapter 40. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger, that's the anger of Potiphar, was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keepers of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. 
There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do pray now that as we consider your word together, you would open our hearts and minds to receive it, that we, like Israel of old, would learn to understand ourselves and our world through it. Bless us and strengthen us in this, we pray now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17. Joseph was sold into slavery at the very tender age of 17. By God's grace, over the next 11 years, he climbs up in Potiphar's household to something like a butler, someone who runs the home and sees to everything. In fact, we're told Potiphar trusted Joseph to run everything, to run the whole household. Potiphar's wife, however, saw Joseph's beautiful appearance, his remarkable life, and since he was, after all, just a Hebrew, just a slave, she demanded that Joseph come to her. This presented a huge crisis in Joseph's life. On the one hand, if he obeyed his master's wife, he would be promoted, empowered. Maybe he was tempted to think that this would be part of how the dreams come true, how he would become a great ruler through her. Then there was just the temptation, of course, in general, and the threat of violence if he disobeyed his master's wife. But despite all this, Joseph ran. He would not keep company with her, you'll remember, and he would not sin against God. So at the age of 28, 17 sold into slavery, 11 years later, 28, he's thrown back into what he refers to here in Genesis 40 as the pit, the pit prison. Now, he's not at this point just a foreign slave, a man who the Egyptians saw as racially inferior, but he is also a criminal. What's worse than being sold into slavery by your own family? Well, I guess being both a slave and a criminal in a foreign land. I think we can all agree this was enough hardship to crush anyone, to finish them off. Imagine being sold into slavery, and not by just anyone, but by your own family. Then you work your way up as a slave, only to be cast back into prison. People who go through trauma like this often can't function. Imagine the temptation that Joseph felt to simply give up, to hate God for his visions. Imagine how you or I might wallow in self-pity or quiet rage. It was not easy, and I'm sure it left its mark on his health. 
a mark that followed him his entire life. But his trials did not have the victory over him. Joseph, like so many great leaders in our Bible, learned to persevere. He learned to persevere. He learned obedience. He learned endurance, didn't he? You know, this is one of the marks, I think, of the great leaders in the Bible. The, the Bible's great men and women usually, almost always, come to greatness by the path of intense suffering and weakness and trial. Unlike so many today who rise to power or fame, they don't start off famous or get famous early. They go through horrible and wretched things that change them. And then and only then are they fit for God's service. Tonight, let's observe this process in the life of Joseph. As we read, you might have noticed Joseph is in prison at the end of chapter 39 that we started with, and nothing changes at the end of chapter 40. This section is about that time, that time in prison. From one perspective, nothing changes here. And someone might even ask, why study this chapter? He's in prison at the start. He's still at prison and in prison at the end. But thinking that way would be a great mistake. God is in this. Let's look together and see what God did for Joseph in these two years in prison. And I want you to notice with me three things that God does here with Joseph in his prison years. First of all, the Lord blesses him. Second of all, the Lord uses him. And thirdly, the Lord keeps him in prison. So we'll see these three things together. So notice with me first, at the end of chapter 39, where we began our reading, how the Lord blessed Joseph in prison. Look at verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord, Yahweh, when you see all caps like that, Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because, once again, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. On the surface, it appears for now that God has abandoned Joseph. Joseph obeyed God. He refuses Potiphar's wife and his reward for doing the right thing was prison. Uh, we are often tempted in anger to mumble to ourselves. I've known, I've done this before, I know. To mumble, no good deed goes unpunished. Maybe you've said that before in anger. And Joseph must at times have felt that way. As sinful humans ourselves, we can understand any anger he might have felt. The anger of being falsely accused. The anger of being racially profiled. And behind it all, the most potent anger a human can have. God, why have you done this to me? I don't think anger was his only feeling, though. He, he must have felt deeply discouraged as well. Life must have felt very futile, pointless, randomly cruel. Here he has this dream, right? 17 years old, a God-given dream that he is going to be a great ruler, greater than all his ancestors, really. But his life seems to be moving backwards away from the dream rather than forwards toward the dream. Remember, he has this dream while he is 
the heir to a large family business and his father's favorite son. That's when the dream comes. Then he becomes a slave in a foreign land. That's a huge step back. And now he's a foreign slave and criminal. His dreams seem to be moving backwards. And yet they are dreams given by God. He has this amazing destiny. And yet here he is in prison a thousand miles from home, alone and seemingly forgotten. But what does Moses tell us in verses 21, 22, and 23? The Lord was with him and showed him, verse 21, steadfast love. Some older translations simply read, God showed him mercy. And that's accurate and reliable way to translate it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I love what the ESV did here. And I think it's, it's a better translation when it says the Lord showed him not just mercy generally, but steadfast love, unchanging love. Even in prison, even in the worst moments of his life, God was steadfastly loving to Joseph. Joseph did not lose his gifts. God did not withdraw his gifts. God did not withdraw his presence. It didn't take long for Joseph to rise to a place of servant leadership. He flourished in prison, just as he flourished everywhere else. He didn't stop. He did not stop using his gifts. Everywhere he went, he made that place better. But here is the key. This happened not because he was a phenomenal guy, although I'm sure he was. But this really happened because God was with him. On the surface, this does not look like success, does it? Going from being an heir to a slave to a criminal slave, going from running a large house to running a prison as a prisoner, that's not a career path any of us would want or choose. But the Holy Spirit here is signaling to us that we should not read Joseph's story so superficially. Even in prison, God is with him. There's evidence of God's blessing everywhere. And it's that way with us too as Christians. It's often when we're in hard times, it's only years later, often, that we can say that whole time, that whole terrible time in my life, that terrible darkness, I can look back and see that God blessed me even during that time, that he never left me, that I was able to use my gifts and do things I didn't think I would be able to do. That's how God works with his people. So don't wait till later. Look now, even right now, if you're going through hard times, there's evidence of God's blessing in Joseph's life. And if you're a believer in your life as well, even if you're in prison. So we see, first of all, Moses wants us to see the Lord was with him. The Lord blessed him in those two years of prison life. The second thing we see, and this is the majority of chapter 40, really verses 1 through 19, the core of it, is that not only was the Lord with him, the Lord used him. In these 19 verses, God uses Joseph as a prophet, as a witness to these men and to the Egyptians. God begins here in prison, not on the throne, but in prison to glorify himself, to show that he alone is God. God alone knows the future and God alone can decree it. And here begins really, if you know the book of Genesis at all, you know the story of Exodus. Here begins a process, a process of triumph, 
God triumphing over the Egyptian leaders and the Egyptian deities, a triumph that will end with the Red Sea turned to blood and Egypt's gods thoroughly humiliated and defeated. But that victory, that great victory at the Exodus actually begins here in a prison with a God who, unlike the Egyptian gods, knows the answers to dreams and knows the future. And so in the first verses of 40, we're told how one day as he is serving in this prison, Joseph receives two very influential men, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. In the ancient world, your cupbearer was in charge of tasting your wine before you drank it. Poison and assassination were major threats to men like Pharaoh. And this is true not just in Egypt, but in England, all over the world where you have kings. So you have a cupbearer. It had to be someone you absolutely, completely trusted. And it's also someone, if you were the king, you wanted them to be pretty rich and pretty powerful themselves so they couldn't be tempted with bribes. So this was a a very important official in the life of Egypt. Uh, One day, uh, we'll come to this eventually in our studies, I'm sure, Nehemiah. Nehemiah will hold this position as cupbearer. And as cupbearer, you spent a lot of time around close to the king, very close. You heard his plans. You shared his problems. Uh, The cupbearer would have been very rich and very important. And the same in similar way is true of the baker. Now, we don't know what happened exactly, but I think we can guess that Pharaoh had become suddenly ill after a meal. Like so many kings of history, he immediately suspects poisoning, but he doesn't know if it came from the food or from the drink. So he casts both men into prison where Joseph, always blessed by God, is given charge over them. In verse 6, Joseph notices that the men are troubled. I think that is a rather extraordinary thing, isn't it? If you've been through uh, something really difficult in your life, if you're going through something really difficult right now, you know how hard it is sometimes to notice anyone else's problems. You're consumed with your own. And yet here's Joseph, and he, he picks up. Something's not right here. So often when we go through hard times, we, we turn inward. It's a defensive mechanism that often becomes selfish. But Joseph is always, throughout Scripture, a great servant everywhere he goes. And he notices their problem. As it turns out, both men had had dreams. That's not an accident. These dreams, of course, are from God. And both men recognize that these dreams are different than the dreams that we all have normally at night. They know there's something uh, mystical, spiritual, religious about what's happened to them. And they probably know it also because they both had them kind of at the same time. They're probably talking to each other and realizing uh, something's going on here. On top of that, we know from history, Egyptians at this time believed that when you dreamed, uh, you actually were in contact with the spiritual realm. So they have all sorts of superstitions around this. They've had these true dreams, but they don't know what to to do with them. They can't get at them. And so they say in verse 8, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. In Egypt, there were men and women who were professional dream interpreters and they would have had books and they would have explained what these dreams mean but the baker and the cupbearer are dismayed because they don't have access in prison to their priests 
to any of these people that would have tried to interpret their, their dreams for them. And so they're, they're brokenhearted. They're sad. They want to know what they mean. It's at, that this, it's at this moment that Joseph makes what I think, if you think about it for a moment, is a, a stunning confession of faith. Really just a wonderful confession of faith in verse 8. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Understand what Joseph just said there. He is a racial minority. He's a slave and he's a prisoner. And he just told two of the greatest men in the most advanced kingdom on earth. Your gods have absolutely no power, by the way. You need the true God. Egypt at this time is vastly more advanced, vastly more advanced and powerful than Abraham's little nomadic family. They are building the wonders of the world. Jacob is a bright guy and he's good with sheep, but that's about it. But Joseph, you see, hasn't lost his faith in God. He's not afraid to witness to God in this prison, in this advanced culture. Not only that, but think about what this statement means as it comes from Joseph's lips, as he says this. It tells us, doesn't it, that he has not stopped believing God concerning himself. He's still believing in the dreams that God has given him. Now, if you've been given a dream by God and it does not seem to be coming true at all, your life is moving in an absolute backwards direction, uh, what are you saying to two very sophisticated men who land in your prison? Maybe you say to them, well, dreams, tell me about it. Let's not, don't even go there. I had these dreams when I was 17, and look at me. That's the jaded, sort of angry, faithless thing. But what does Joseph say? This is such a profound confession of faith. For this man in this moment, he says the dreams belong to God the interpretation belongs to God. He even seems to be confessing, doesn't he, that you don't see my dream coming true, but the interpretation belongs to God. It's almost a confession. My dream is going to happen. The way it happens belongs to God. And then he has the amazing strength to say, tell it to me. Despite everything that's happened to me, everything that's gone wrong, Joseph believes in God and he believes that he is God's man, God's prophet, even after everything that's happened. Here, brothers and sisters, I think we have one of the greatest examples in the Bible of a really practical and important truth for us. It is so important that we do not change our theology to fit our life experience. In our culture, we're told every day, every day, that the only real truth, the only deep truth out there in the world is your truth. This has gotten so out of control in our culture that people can claim to be different genders, races, or even different species and be applauded for it because they are living, quote, their truth. Sadly, even in the church, we are seeing this kind of experience-driven thinking. But notice, this is exactly what Joseph does not, does not do. His experience, his trauma, tells him he is lost and abandoned by God. 
Those dreams, those revelations given by God seem quaint and unfulfilled. But amazingly, by God's grace, Joseph is not moved. His theology shapes his life, you see, not the other way around. And here's the key. That is why, that is how God can use him and use you and me. Think about it. If these two men show up in prison one day with a dream and Joseph is jaded, has lost his faith because he's living out of his experience and not out of revelation from God, but out of his experience, these two men show up and Joseph says, dreams, tell me about it. Let me tell you how I've been disappointed. What happened to me? If Joseph is jaded and miserable and self-focused, guess what? He can't help anyone. But Joseph is not writing his theology out of his life experience. No, he's taking what he knows of God and shaping his life and beliefs around that. And so he can boldly say to the two powerful Egyptians, God is the interpreter of dreams. And despite all appearances, I am his man. You know, so many, so many people in the American church today are, are absolutely, and I say this sadly, they're absolutely no use to God and they're no use to the world. They're no use because they have nothing to offer. What the world needed then in that moment in a prison and what it needs today in our chaos, what the world needs is humble loving voice that is also confidently established in the word of God. They need someone to say, as Joseph did, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why are you troubled? Our neighbors need us to ask that question because they are. They're very troubled. And then what they don't need next is some jaded, misguided, fuzzy picture of what's happening. What they need is a humble, very humble very loving, but very straight answer. There is a God. There is a God who can help you. There's a God who can help you. And as sinful and broken as I am, I'm his man. I'm his woman. Let's talk. That's the humble, loving confession of faith that will be used. It's the only confession that's ever been used in the history of the church. It's the kind of person Jesus uses, and it's going to be that way going forward as well. So you see the Lord was with him. You see that the Lord used him and his faith. Lastly, and maybe most shocking of all, the Lord kept Joseph in prison. He kept Joseph in prison. We see that in the very final verses of the chapter, don't we? Despite all that's happened, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Two years passed. He has just forgotten and can you imagine for the first couple of weeks, for the first couple of weeks or days after the cupbearer is saved, Joseph's listening for footsteps, right? He's thinking any day now, uh, the cupbearer is going to remember me. He's an extremely powerful man, extremely wealthy. He's going to get me out of here. But no, God took his servant and said, no, I want you to stay. I want you to stay in this suffering. I want you to stay in this pain. I want you to stay in this hurt. I have something for you in it. John Calvin uh, rightly, I think, says this, this moment, verse 23, this was the greatest test of Joseph's faith and patience. This is the hardest thing, I think, in a believer's life when suffering just sticks to you. 
not new suffering, not purposeful suffering that is leading to a clear end. No, what will threaten you to the core is long-haul suffering. It's the pain that we just wake up with every day that threatens to undo us. If we're really honest with each other, many of us have known this reality. We've experienced prolonged suffering that seems pointless. In fact, the more you're exposed, the more you're really exposed to the massive suffering of this world, the more you will be tempted to see it all as rather pointless. And, and here's why that is. Because, you see, the real power, the real weight of suffering is not the pain. Did you know that? Some of you do. It isn't the pain of suffering that will get you in the end. No, it's the questions. Suffering's real power over us comes when it feels pointless. It's the questions. If you're having a painful surgery, but you know at the end, you know that you'll be able to run again. Your leg's being operated, but you know if you have this surgery, you'll be able to run again. It hurts, but you are comforted by the purpose of it. I cannot imagine, will not pretend to imagine what pregnancy is like, what labor is like, but I would imagine the same idea applies. It's miserable, but there's a point, a happy ending. But what if there's no obvious point? No happy ending in our chapter tonight. The crushing power of suffering is not the pain itself. It's the doubts. It's the questions. The way in which it makes everything seem pointless. Pointless. And that's why we so desperately need this chapter and the cross of Jesus Christ. In both moments, in this chapter and at the cross, the whole thing seems so pointless. Remember, the disciples had placed all their faith in the victory of Jesus over the Romans. They dreamed of sitting on earthly thrones, and there is Jesus. Hard for us to imagine this, but there is Jesus, gulping for air, naked, covered in excrement, bleeding, mocked by the road on a cross, surrounded by other failed revolutionaries. And they're shattered. They're shattered by what they feel is the pointlessness of all of it. But what do we know, standing at this point in history? From that seemingly hopeless pit, God will bring Joseph to greatness, greatness unimaginable, and how much more so with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, a minister, Presbyterian minister, once compared God's work in our life to an old-fashioned pocket watch. And certainly this was true of Joseph and of Christ as well. If you open the back of an old-fashioned pocket watch, and um, Deacon Whiteman is not here, he'll always oblige you, I'm sure, if you ask him to do this. If you open the back of that old, you know, round pocket watch, the gears back there are often rotating backwards, counterclockwise. But even as they do that, even as they're moving backwards, they're moving the hands on the front of the watch in the forward direction. Much in our lives today, if you pop the hood of your life, it seems often pointless. There's much suffering that seems pointless, much hardship 
that seems counterproductive. The wheels seem to be moving backwards, taking you away from God's promises, away from glory, away from your dreams, away from God's promises to you. And yet in God's plan, in his masterful wisdom, those backward moving wheels are actually moving you forward. The truth is that every believer, every believer here, every believer in the world is being prepared for unimaginable greatness. If you're hearing this on the internet and you're a paraplegic Christian, this applies to you as much as it does to me. Each of us, every Christian is being prepared for an eternity ruling with Christ. Our advancement from this life to the next will far outstrip Joseph's rise to Egyptian prime minister. Lewis rightly says, C.S. Lewis, that if, if you saw your future self, what you're going to be after the resurrection, the things we talked about this morning, if you saw your future self, Lewis says, you would be tempted to worship that person. And that's biblical. For what do the scriptures say? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The wheels in your life, the wheels in Christ's life at that moment, the wheels in this moment of Joseph's life, the wheels may seem to be spinning backwards, but they always turn forward in the end for Christ and for all those who are in him now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight in the darkness of this world and the hardship of suffering, of losing friends and family, of diagnoses that we just never imagined would come to us, all kinds of hardships and pains. And in our struggles through the week, we are tempted to become angry, to deny your promises and to live out of our experience rather to live out than to live out of your revelation. We look at our lives and we see all these backward moving gears and we imagine that in the end it is all pointless and we have been betrayed and lost and left and that our dreams, the dreams of our youth are trash and worthless. And yet you have shown us in the person of your son that not one promise will fall and that all you've promised to do for us and him will come about. Help your people tonight to know and believe that every prison and every hardship in their life has been hand chosen for them so that they might be given unimaginable greatness in time to come. So that they might, might Joseph might come out of prison and rule and reign with Christ forever. Give them that confidence and hope, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.